Thank you, Jack, so much. What a blessing. Thank you, Corey and uh, praise team and congregation for wonderful singing this morning. What a good time it's been already in the Word and, and in prayer. Uh, my name is Tim McGee. I am uh, one of the associate pastors here at First Baptist Powell, and uh, I have the privilege this morning of opening God's Word with you. So if you have your Bibles with you, find the book of Philippians. Philippians, uh, and you're going to need your scriptures this morning. Not that you wouldn't normally need them, uh, Pastor Perry, uh, <clears throat> but uh, you will need them extensively this morning as we look at God's Word together. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in, in uh, verse 1, and as you're finding that, let me uh, uh, just say a word of what a privilege it is for me to be able to stand here this morning and preach God's Word. I'm always honored to do that. I am especially honored to do it in this place with my church and, uh, as they say, with my peeps. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I dearly love you and am so grateful for this opportunity. So if you would, if you found Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 1, if you would stand in honor of the, uh, the Word of God, if you're able. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think one of the most difficult challenges in preaching a sermon at times is introduction. And that's particularly true for me this morning because where I find myself, not physically, but in the, in the rhythm of our church's worship and liturgy, if you're a regular attender at First Baptist Powell, you know that for a number of weeks, even months now, we have been walking verse by verse through the, the beautiful book of Acts. And each week, our pastor has opened the Word and exposits a, a portion of the text, and, and we learn from that and move forward. And, and then, every now and then, guys like me step into the pulpit, and we're hopefully a divine interruption, but certainly an interruption no less. And so I feel a little bit like um, 
the uh, untimely timeout in a basketball game. By the way, go Vols. <clears throat> Couldn't let it pass, wore the tie. Uh, but I feel like that, you know, things are running pretty well. The, the, your team is playing pretty well, and the other coach calls timeout, and it sort of breaks the rhythm, sort of breaks the flow. And so as Pastor and I were talking about this, I, I determined that I didn't want to break the flow, but I also knew that I could not pick up in Acts 16 where he left off and do it justice uh, because uh, my thoughts are not his thoughts. Neither are my ways his ways. <laughs> With that in mind, this morning I've taken us to the epistle of Paul to the church in Philippi. And it is by reason we are in this book. And uh, I'll get to that in just a moment. But my challenge this morning, and this is all part of that introduction I really didn't know how to do, uh, my, my challenge this morning is one that I have never sought to do in over 40 years of preaching the Word of God. This morning... I am going to preach in its entirety Philippians. Don't head for the exits. Uh, I promise uh, we're not going to dig into every single verse and exposit every Greek verb. But we are, hopefully, by the time we finish together today, my prayer has been as I've prepared this, as I've worked through this, is that you will have an understanding of the overall message of the, of, of, and theme of this book, as well as how this would apply to our church, because after all, that's who Paul is writing, is a church, and to, our, to yourself as a, as a unique follower of Christ in, in the 21st century in Powell, Tennessee. And so I've entitled today's message, you saw if you picked up a bulletin, simply this, Philippians, an epistle of humility. And the epistle of humility. So let me lay a little bit of historical background, a little bit of Pauline background, and then we're going to jump right into the, uh, to all four chapters uh, and uh, see what the Lord has to say to us perhaps this morning in His kindness. As many of you are all aware, Paul founded the church in Philippi somewhere around 50 A.D. We're not exactly sure of the exact date. There's no cornerstone anywhere that we can go to and see it graved in a rock. Uh, but it was during this, what would be called his second missionary journey. And as I said, if you've been here with us, if you were here particularly last week, you, you learned that, uh, uh, along with the rest of us, that this church came about as a, as a direct result of, of the moving of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life and among that missionary party. In fact, Paul had sought to go into Asia, or as we would call it today, Asia Minor. And the Holy Spirit prevented him, would not allow him to go. And in fact, in a vision, Paul would see a man from Macedonia calling out for help. Come and help us, the text tells us. And Paul, seeing that and believing that to be the leadership of the Holy Spirit, answered that call and went into Macedonia. And one of his earliest stops was a city by the name of Philippi. It was there... Paul began to preach the gospel in what is now modern Greece, northern part of the country. Now, Paul's custom was to come into a city, find a Jewish synagogue, go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and teach the gospel. There was no synagogue in Philippi. It was predominantly a Greek or Gentile city. And so Paul began to inquire, are there any 
God followers, any, any of those who would follow Judaism in the city. And he discovered there was a group of women who were accustomed of gathering on the, on the Sabbath day by the river and praying. And so Paul joined their prayer meeting. And there he would preach the gospel. And it is in, in Acts 16, 12. We'll get to this, I think, probably next week. In Acts 16, 12, in, in, in following verses, we find the first convert in the city, a woman by the name of Lydia. Paul would continue ministering in the city, and at one point he would, he would, uh, he would encounter a demon-possessed girl who, who was uh, used of, of men to tell fortunes and uh, make money, and he would, he would exercise that demon, and, and because of that, there would be a riot in town. He and Silas would get thrown into jail. You know the story, right? Uh, at midnight, they would be singing and praying, and God would send an earthquake to free them from prison. Uh, the jailer, in fear of his life, takes him home. Paul preaches the gospel there, and we are told in, in Acts 16, verses 25 through 40, that the jailer and his household are saved and baptized. For my Presbyterian friends here this morning, we, I will... I will uh, avoid chasing the rabbit of how you come up with infant baptism in that text, I'm still not sure. <clears throat> but nonetheless, the church in Philippi is founded. And it's founded in the midst of persecution and suffering. Fast forward now, almost a decade. Probably about a decade. Paul is in prison now. He is suffering in prison for the preaching of the gospel. And he is, he is looking at what very likely may be his imminent death. In that context, Paul puts quill to, to parchment, and he begins to write to the church in Philippi. And in this, in this letter to the Philippians, in the midst of his suffering, Paul is filled with unspeakable and uncomprehensible joy. Ten times in the book of Philippians... Paul makes reference to joy and being joyful. Again, while in prison, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul is writing to what is at that time a, a relatively young group of Christians. There are new Christians primarily there in Philippi, and they had become somewhat frightened and discouraged, apparently, by the prospects of their own suffering, their own persecution. And so Paul begins by expressing his gratitude for their support, and he encourages them in the midst of their suffering. And in the heart of that encouragement, in the heart of this, Paul, Paul gives to us what I believe is the, the overwhelming theme. Now, many will look at Philippians and say, well, the theme is joy, and certainly that's one of the themes. But I think there's a deeper theme here to be found. I think it is, I didn't think it is the theme of gospel humility. Because in the very heart of Philippians, the text we read this morning in chapter 2, Paul sets forth the humility of Christ, and in, by doing so, he urges his readers to grow in that same Christ-like humility. It is, it is here we see, I believe, what is the, indeed the theme of this book. The theme of humility. But not just, not just man's humility, but gospel humility. And so this morning, we're going to unpack the entire book around three thoughts. Are you ready? Here they are. If you're taking notes, we're going to first see that gospel humility is grounded in the person and work of Christ. 
that gospel humility, or a synonym, true humility, is grounded in the gospel of Christ. Secondly, secondly, we'll see together that gospel humility is experienced in the context of the local church. Don't miss this, and I'll bring us back to this and, and press in on it pretty heavily. But gospel humility is experienced in the context of gathering of a local body of believers. After all, that's what this letter is, a letter to a local body of believers. And then thirdly, we'll, also, we'll see that gospel humility equips, that gospel humility equips believers to persevere in suffering. So those will be our, our three major points this morning. There'll be plenty underneath those for you to write, uh, and I'll try to help you along as we go. But three things. Gospel humility is grounded in the person and work of Christ. It is experienced in the context of the local church, and it equips believers to persevere in suffering. Now, as our practice here, if you're here this morning and you're one of our young worshipers, you're... you're um, you're not, an, you're not an adult, or maybe you consider yourself a young worshiper and you are an adult. I don't know, but uh, for our young worshipers, let me, let me give you a couple things to be looking for, okay? Number one, and I'm going to give you a little bit of, of specific guidance here since we're covering so much this morning in text. In, in chapter 3, or excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 3, we read it a moment ago, and I'll come back to it later in the message. Paul instructs the Philippians and us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That's part of the verse. He continues in that verse to instruct us to think of others in a certain way. In what way does he instruct us to count others? Right out of the text, young worshipers. He instructs us to think about others in a certain way. What is that? And then secondly, to whom... Does Paul say that every knee will one day bow? It's in the text we read already. To whom does Paul say that one day every knee will bow? All right, let's jump into our, our, our uh, outline. First, first statement. Gospel humility is grounded in the person and work of Christ. Two subpoints here. We're going to simply look at the person and the work of Christ. Pretty simple outline, right? Paul does this for us here in chapter 2 in the text that we read, primarily, uh, although he helps us in other places. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 7, Paul sets before us the person of Christ. He teaches us two things about Jesus here, that he is both truly God and truly man. That he is truly God and truly man. First of all, Paul teaches us that Christ is truly God. Look again at verse 6 of our text. Speaking of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Two things I want you to notice, two phrases in this text, that I want you to, to sort of focus in on this morning as we think about Christ, as, uh, that he is truly God. First of all, Paul says, though he was in the form of God, of God. In the original language, the word used there is the ideal of an exact representation. It points to the fact that Christ was and continues to be both eternally and essentially God. That Christ and God are one. 
Paul would say it this way in Colossians 1.15, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And John, John would help us here by writing in the first chapter, beginning in verse 1, these words. In the beginning was the Word, another name for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the, he was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see what John is saying here? He's saying that Jesus is God, essentially and eternally. And Jesus Himself would say it, if there were any doubt, to Thomas in John 14, 9, when He said, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. Paul teaches us that Christ is truly God. Secondly, in these verses, Paul teaches us that Christ is truly man. Look again at verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, as you can imagine, this verse is not without controversy in church history. And I have neither the time nor, I don't think, the understanding to take us too far down that road. But simply put what does it mean that Christ emptied himself? That has been a troubling phrase for theologians for, the, for centuries. But in my simplistic East Tennessee mind, let me help you understand what I believe this is teaching. It says he emptied himself. I believe and I understand that this means that Christ voluntarily laid aside certain rights and prerogatives of his deity but not his deity. In other words, Jesus, in becoming man, laid aside certain rights that were his and prerogatives that belonged to him as God, but he never ceased to be God. For instance, he did not cease being omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, or immutable. He simply did not exercise those attributes to the fullest potential as a man on earth. And then it says this about Christ being truly man. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Not only did Christ have all the attributes of any man. He hungered, he slept, he got tired. Yet, without sin, he was, listen to this, the servant of of all men. So much so, Mark would write in Mark 10 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you catch that? This, this God became man, and so much a man that he became a servant of all men, that he would give his life as a ransom. And so we see the person of Christ is summarized in that simple term. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Secondly, Paul speaks here of this, of this gospel humility being grounded not only in the person of Christ, but in the work of Christ. We see this work laid out for us in verses 8 through 11. Let me read those for us once again. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice, if you will, a, a, a couple things here about this work. And I want to summarize this work in two words. There is the work of substitution, Paul speaks of here, and the work of mediation that Paul speaks of here. First of all, the work of substitution, verse 8. And being found in the form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The work of substitution is simply summarized in these words. Christ died for sinners. Can I get an amen? I mean, guys, that's good news. Christ died for sinners. Christ humbled himself, not only by becoming a servant, but by becoming the suffering servant. Isaiah would prophesy in Isaiah 53 and Surely this was in the back of Paul's mind when he wrote this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He, suffered, he humbled himself. Not only by becoming a servant, but the suffering servant. Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate demonstration of his humility and his love for mankind. Peter would write in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. And so we see... In Christ, this humility being exercised and lived out in His work of substitution on the cross, dying for our sins. But secondly, in His work of mediation, as He intercedes for us in heaven. We see that in verses 9 through 11. In verses 9 through 11, we read of the exaltation of what is sometimes referred to as the session of Christ in theological terms. This refers to His present ministry in heaven for His people. See, Jesus is still working on our behalf. He is still serving us and loving us as He reigns in heaven. Notice in verse 9, we read these words, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, highly exalted Him, and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name. This speaks of Christ's position. Verse 10, So that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This speaks of Christ's power. We see his position, the exalted one. We see his power. Every knee bows to him. He is all powerful. And then verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This speaks of Christ's praise. And so, we see here the gospel of Jesus Christ laid out for us in beauty in what was an ancient hymn. And Paul tells us that this God who created everything, who is good and holy and just, created man in his own image. But we, in our sinfulness, rebelled and turned from God. First, in our original parents, Adam and Eve, but we ourselves have rebelled against this God. We have said we don't have to obey your law, your rules, We'll do it the way we want. 
Yet God in His mercy and love through Christ became a man, lived without sin, died on the cross as we've read this morning, rose again on the third and appointed day, has ascended to heaven where He mediates on our behalf and is coming again in victory to judge the world. And He says to every one of us, if you'll believe and repent, you'll have eternal life. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ in that way, perhaps you're here this morning and you have questions, or maybe you're here this morning and you've thought about this, or maybe you've not thought about it at all, I would, I would urge upon you in this hour, think about these things. If you'd like to talk to someone, I'll be around after the service. Our elders will be there. There'll be someone in the crossroad. We would love to sit with you and talk with you about what it means to follow this Jesus who is truly God and truly man and who is our Savior and our Lord. Gospel humility is grounded in the personal work of Christ. Secondly, gospel humility is experienced in the context of a local church. Now you say, where do you get that? Well, it's all through this, this epistle. It begins that way. Paul begins in verse, in verse 1, writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. That's just a fancy way of saying church. He, he is writing to a local church. And so as we experience gospel humility, how do we experience it in the context of a local church? Let me suggest, let me suggest four ways. First of all, first of all, gospel humility. Gospel humility builds supernatural unity. Gospel humility builds supernatural humility. Notice, notice how Paul describes his heart and his desire for this church. In, in, in chapter 1, verse 27, we read these words, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, in the text we read, Paul says this to them, that, they might that you might complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul points out in these texts that a life that is worthy of the gospel is a life that is unified with the members of the church. This is, this is talking about unity now, not uniformity. I thought about doing something really bold this morning, but I'm not going to. I thought about having certain individuals stand across the congregation this morning. But I'll just challenge you. Look around. Does everybody around you look just like you? Are they the same age? Are they the same gender? Do they have the same background? Did they all come from Knoxville or Powell? Are they all, are they all a certain uh, uh, socioeconomic level? Now, doubtless, the answer to that is no. This is a diverse group of people. We're diverse ethnically, socially. Some of us are, we're diverse politically, dare I say. We're not all the same. But there is something that unifies us. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul never told us to all be alike. He told us all to be of one mind. And that mind is set on Christ and in Christ 
This is a common theme we see throughout the New Testament. In, in Acts 1, prior to Pentecost, it says they are of one accord. In Acts 4, after being persecuted, it says they are of one heart and one soul. Paul points out that in the context of Christ-like humility, we experience supernatural unity. You know how we can get along being so different? is by means of humility. It doesn't always have to be my way. Secondly, this gospel humility experienced in the local church produces Christian community. We read in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, about this community. Paul talks about, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he writes this, he writes this So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, any love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, Paul is saying that a, a genuine love is a mark of the Christian church. Now notice, humility lays at the base of genuine love. If you're married here this morning, you know what I'm talking about. You, you experience it. I had the privilege of being at the celebration Friday night for the Rickles. And one of the slides, somebody said something to the effect, so many hours of compromise. And uh, I laughed. Carla didn't laugh as much, but I laughed. <clears throat> and because you know what? That's life, isn't it? If you're going to stay together, you're going to, you're going to experience some humility. And, and that's how love is expressed. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, This would be what marks us aside from the world, that we love one another. Paul expressed his genuine love for the Philippians. In, in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, listen to these words. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart. Listen to this. These are not cold words of a theologian. These are the passionate words of a pastor. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you hear it? Can you feel it? There's this love that Paul had for the Philippians and that the Philippians had for him. At the, at the close of the book, in the closing words, chapter 10 of, uh, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 10, Paul would write this I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Do you see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that in the context of a local church, humility, gospel humility is experienced because we are able to love one another even when we're not lovely. It's seen in sacrificial service. In the text that we read in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, Paul says that humility is expressed when we consider others first. In fact, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And then in Romans 12, 10, Paul would echo that in writing, Love one another with brotherly affection. I love this phrase. Outdo one another in showing honor. What would it be like at First Baptist Church, pal, if we came in every Lord's Day and every day and we sought to outdo one another in how we expressed and lived out our love for the body of Christ? Humility is expressed when we refuse to explain, or excuse me, when we refuse to complain when we don't get our way. 
In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul rebukes them and says this, Do all things without grumbling or dispute. Paul's exhortation suggests that complaining and arguing, disagreements, unkindness, sharp words are the clearest indications of a lack of genuine humility. Good words for our community here and for our families at home. Thirdly, this gospel humility in the local church platforms a clear gospel witness. I don't have time to unpack this a great deal, but look back at chapter 2 and verse 14 with me. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do you hear that? Every, you know, people say to me all the time, Pastor, I, it's never been this bad. Friend, it was pretty bad in Paul's day. What was his admonition? Was his admonition to shake our fist in our political opponent's face? No, his admonition was to be lights shining because of who we are in Christ. That this would platform our gospel witness. Jesus said a similar thing in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 5 when he said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Finally, this ideal of community, gospel humility experiencing it, uh, experienced in the, church, in the local church is that gospel humility facilitates genuine spirit-filled worship. We see it in chapter 4, in verses 4 through 7. <clears throat> Paul is exhorting them now to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he says, I will say rejoice, let your reasonables be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I know most of us read that in a very individualistic way. We read that and say, oh, look at what Paul's saying to us in our own personal life. And certainly there is application of that. But I want to remind you, he wasn't writing to an individual. He was writing to a church. And when the church gathers together to worship, what do we do? We pray and we rejoice and we sing and we hear the Word. It is in the context of worship, genuine Spirit-filled worship that is centered on God and not man, that will be marked by rejoicing and prayer and peace. And it is in that context our humility is expressed. Doubtless this morning, some of us here would have preferred a different style of music. Or maybe even a different preacher. But we got what God gave us because of the goodness and the kindness of our Lord to rejoice in it. Finally, gospel humility equips the believers to persevere in suffering. I want you to hang with me here a little bit because in some ways this is the most particularly applicable part to us as individuals in this text. In the Philippians and elsewhere, Paul assures his audience, his readers, of the certainty of suffering in this life. In fact, Paul so much as says, if you're a Christian, you will suffer. Indeed, that's what he tells Timothy. And so in that, he begins to instruct us concerning suffering. So the question here is not, will we suffer? The question is, when we suffer? How will we respond? Let me point out 
Five things. I know that's a lot, but hang with me. We'll get there, I promise. First of all, Paul instructs us that, that, that gospel humility will help us see God's purpose in our suffering. To see our, our God's purpose in our suffering. Back over in chapter 1, Paul speaks of the purpose of his suffering. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Simply put, simply put, Paul says there are says there's two reasons I've been imprisoned. I've been imprisoned because of the gospel, but here are the products. Here's what it produces. Number one, it evangelizes the lost. In verses 12 and 13, he specifically says it will evangelize the lost. He says it has served to advance the gospel. Paul said it didn't matter that he had been wrongfully imprisoned. It didn't matter that he had been unjustly treated. It didn't matter that he was suffering greatly. God had glorified himself by the spread of the gospel among whom God Paul had encountered. Secondly, not only does it evangelize the lost, it encouraged the saved. It encouraged the saved. He says that brothers have been emboldened by this. They've seen what God is doing in my life through my imprisonment, and they have been emboldened in the gospel. Sometimes our suffering is used to encourage others to continue in their walk and their faithfulness. And then over in chapter 3, Paul picks up the same theme when he writes this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I'm in verse 7 now in chapter 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul continues in those verses to talk about being found in Christ and his righteousness. And in verse 10, he said that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in death. Simply put, Paul says, one of the purposes of my suffering is that I might be drawn closer to Jesus. Doubtless suffering is coming. Humility will help us understand the purpose. That it really isn't just about us. It's about others who will hear the gospel. It's about brothers and sisters who will be encouraged. And it's about us loving our Savior more than when we started. Paul continues here in Philippians to instruct us that, 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 that suffering will help us prioritize the gospel above everything else. Strange, uh, strange text. We won't, we won't take time to read it. You might jot it down in your notes, but Philippians 1, 15 through 18, Paul goes through this, this thing of, of there were those who were preaching the gospel out of impure motives. In fact, they were really trying to make life hard for Paul. But listen to Paul's response to that in verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Paul says that the only things that mattered was that the gospel was being proclaimed, and in that he would rejoice. 
I want you to think on that a minute. When suffering comes, is the gospel paramount? Even above his personal safety and comfort, as we saw in in chapter 3, Paul would continue talking about his suffering. And he says, even in that context, in chapter 2, verse 17, he said, I'm being poured out, as it were, like a drink offering. I'm being sacrificed. He said, but he would go on to say in that verse, he said, but I am glad because it is an offering for your faith. It is for your good. It is for the advancement of the gospel. Thirdly, Paul instructs us to come to terms with our own mortality. In suffering, Paul will help. Paul says God will help us come to terms with our own mortality. Friends, I got, I got alarming news for you this morning. You're going to die. If Jesus doesn't return, you're going to die. You're going to be somewhere doing something, but you're going to die. And Paul in chapter 1 deals with this head on. He, in, in verse 21, he writes to this. He says, look, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a, what an outs- what a statement. And then verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for you. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And then in verse 10, he says, he says that I may know Christ in the power of His resurrection, and I may share in His suffering. Paul says, I will not rebel against my suffering. I will not push back. Rather, I will embrace my suffering as evidence of my genuine conversion and Christ-likeness. Paul understood that to be like Christ was meant to suffer and to die. After all, that's exactly what he tells us in chapter 2. Fourth, Paul is... Uh, Paul instructs us in chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, to receive suffering as a gift from God. Notice the language here in chapter 1, verse 29. For it is being granted to you. Isn't that strange? I'm suffering. It's a gift. It's being granted to me. It is being granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul did not, did not only not rebel against it, he received it and embraced it. He saw his mortality as, a, as something that was coming and he embraced his suffering as a gift from God. And then finally, he instructs us to rest in Christ. How in the world can a person do this? I'm going I'm to be honest with you. I don't like pain. I do not enjoy pain. But what I see here is is Paul giving us instructions on how we're to humbly accept, receive, and persevere in the midst of suffering. And he he sums it up, I believe, in chapter 4. In verses that are probably very familiar to most of us here this morning. Beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned 
in whatever situation I am, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul wants the Philippians, and by extension us, to be prepared to be in want. To be prepared to be in hunger. To be prepared to be in pain and suffering and difficulty. And the way we're prepared to that is by knowing how to rely on God's provision of strength. We deserve nothing, but we receive all things in Christ. And in that we rejoice. Paul says, gospel humility prepares us. It equips us for the certainty of suffering that we might persevere for the glory of God. So what did we learn today from this epistle of humility written by the apostle? Let me summarize. In review, gospel humility is grounded in the person and work of Christ. God, the Son, humbled Himself, became truly man, lived without sin, died on the cross for sinners, rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and is coming again. And in that truth and reality of Christ's humility, we find our source of humility. Gospel humility is experienced most faithfully in the context of a local church. Though far from perfect, the local church provides us with the best context to live out our faith as humble, loving servants of Christ and His people. And then finally, gospel humility equips us to persevere in suffering. Suffering is certain and unavoidable. It's coming. You know that. Yet God has promised to grant us both the gift of suffering and the ability to glorify Him in and through our suffering. I want to conclude with the words of Paul in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. These are my words to you this morning, dear church. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have left us not, not hopeless. You've left us not without resources, but you have indwelled us by your spirit individually and supernaturally corporately. Thank you for the church, for how the church provides for us as it were, the laboratory to live out this faith. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Thank you for Christ, who is both our example and our Lord. Thank you that we will persevere. Grant us, God, true gospel humility in our hearts and in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Thank <laughs> you.